0: Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual prizes, as well as discussions with book lovers from across the country. Now, my guest for this episode is a lover of genre fiction, and her Vancouver bookstore started as a book truck. If you don't know who I'm talking about, don't worry, here she
1: is to introduce herself. My name is Hilary Atleo, and I'm the co-owner of Iron Dog Books with my husband Cliff. And my mom is Anishinaabe from Curve Lake, Ontario, and my dad is a settler. Hilary and I talked about how Iron Dog
0: started and what she loves to read. We also talked about independent and internet booksellers. Here's my conversation with Hilary Atleo. If you could be the character from any book, novel, poem, kids book, I think we recently, uh, Rob Bittner threw in Neo from The Matrix, so it's gone to <laughs> uh, movies too, who would you be
1: and why? This honestly is like the hardest question ever to ask anyone because you wind up caught, it's like when someone says, what's your favorite book? And you're like... I can't be too obvious. So (laughs) I can't be too arrogant. But I think I I had a good think about it. And I've always been attracted to really self-possessed characters, um, you know, like thoughtful characters. And so I think I'm not... If you read Terry Pratchett, do you read Terry Pratchett? I haven't, the, no. Oh. He's really funny a British author. But if you read Terry Pratchett, I think I would like to grow up to be a Granny Weatherwax type character. She's wise, insightful, and hard as nails. But I think I will wind up being more of a nanny og, warm and cozy and supportive and with an inappropriate sense of humor. So, <laughs> you know, that's where I think not necessarily what I who I would be if I could be anyone, but who I think I will turn out as (laughs) when I'm older.
0: (laughs) I like that. And now I'm curious about Terry Pratchett and I haven't read his stuff before. So now it makes me want to dive in. What are you reading right now? What are you enjoying these days?
1: I mostly read for work. um, So I review a lot of advanced reading copies. I sample books we want to recommend. Um, Right now out of that set, I'm reading My Aki Tree by Suzanne Barr, which comes out in April. I'm reading The Lover and the Lake, which is translated from uh, French, billed as the first Indigenous erotic novel published. Yeah, I'm reading a lot of stuff that is either out in the future that I want to be able to give people more coherent reviews on. Um, But for fun, I finally decided to commit to fun reading and I have been staying up way too late reading Gideon the ninth by Tampson Muir, which is a sci-fi novel that is just, (laughs) if you picture, if you picture what people think science fiction novels are, this is basically that it's like all of the things and really complicated world building. And I just, I've been reading it pretty obsessively for the last couple days.
0: Do you gravitate to sci-fi more than other genres? Like if you're reading for fun, is that
1: where you land? Yeah, absolutely. There's no question that I'm a genre reader for fun. I'm not a literary reader for fun. Science fiction and fantasy were probably fantasy was my first love. And as I've gotten older, I've gotten way more about ideas. And so science fiction is where if I just, if I want to enjoy myself, that's what I will read and that's that's Terry Pratchett in a nutshell although he's incredibly like fussy funny British fantasy which is not really my genre anymore but yeah yeah I was
0: gonna ask how you put your your to read list together but it sounds like it's it kind of gets made itself by what lands on your desk for work
1: yeah it's 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 I don't mean this to sound like a bummer because I don't think it's a problem but in the last few years I've become sort of a serial book starter and then a book skimmer, which is not anything that I would have been probably before we opened the brick and mortar store, but on my TBR. So basically the, the difficulty is keeping things off the TBR um, because it's huge. And it I, I'm just constantly being like, this looks interesting and that looks interesting. And I'll get around to that one day. Um, but the line about whether something does go on or off is I tend to read books that I haven't heard a lot about or that I want to review for my customers if something's really popular and everyone's talking about it I probably will just assume that I understand it enough because just through the zeitgeist and it would be you know there's you can't read everything like you can do the math and figure out how many books you can read and it's not that many um in your life and so I tend to read things where I feel like I haven't already heard all the critique and everything there is to know about it beforehand you know
0: I'm kind of the same way. I I I'm more interested in like the independent publishers and what they're doing and like the small books that don't end up on Reese Witherspoon's book club list. Like that's what kind of I find myself more drawn to.
1: Yeah, from a professional standpoint, really like this comes out of this this my work and the fact that it's not efficient for me to read The thing that all of my customers have told me they read and loved, it's more efficient for me to try and find the next thing they're going to read and love and to try and triangulate from the thing that was a hit, probably not because I read it and recommended it to them, but because the paper did and the prize committee so it's not, it's not that there's anything wrong with them it's that I know enough about the book like I said it's this professional thing where so much of my reading is information gathering and so if that if I've got that information from not not being a serial book starter and just reading the first few chapters and then skimming the rest then I'll probably be like it's okay I can take my hours of reading time and read just just literally anything else just something that isn't I haven't heard about otherwise that you know there's so many good mid-list books out there that you, you aren't going to hear of it unless your independent bookseller tell, puts it in your hands and tells you to read it and I just think that's a good use of my time um, and of my reading muscles you know to enjoy those things yeah
0: you kind of already touched on this but how did your journey as a reader start have you always been a reader or was this an, something that came more as an adult
1: comes from both sides of my family when I was a kid really strict rules around screen time and then in the summers we used to live for 10 weeks uh like the summer vacation 10 weeks uh at our cabin in the country which had only very uh like I was going to call it unreliable it had one power line that went down to it so we had electricity but wasn't necessarily terribly consistent and um, the running water we had to put in every spring in a pipe in the lake so you couldn't drink it so there was no access to entertainment other than what you could do outside and what you could read basically and or you know what you could do with your family like play board games so I we all of the kids in my family we used to read really copiously and my parents as well I started with traditional kid literature like Laura Ingalls Wilder and Nancy Drew and Archie Comics but just it didn't take me long to realize like we were saying earlier that I really loved science fiction and fantasy and that continues throughout my life to be a thread like a touchstone I'll return to
0: it seems really interesting with sci-fi and fantasy because I think like when I was a kid, it was, it was probably painted with a you know nerds, red sci-fi and fantasy, or that's how that's how it was you know described. What? Um, I'm so shocked and offended. I know, I know right? <laughs> like as if this is a surprise. But it's interesting because it seems like that line has moved, like especially maybe with the way it's been ad- adapted for TV and film, that no longer is it kind of this out this like strange outlier of like genre fiction it's now like much more popular and I think maybe it's also because of how we are now reading dystopian fiction more and more too that the line has people it seems like more people are picking up those books than maybe they were before or more comfortable saying that's what they're reading than what they were before I think
1: it's it's an interesting just sort of talk about like the the zeitgeist and cultural shifts in general, because I, I was listening to a podcast recently and podcasts also, I think are a really important part of this shift toward nerd culture, but where someone said, you know, before nerd culture ate the world. And I was like, it's true. Like our cultural production, so much of it is owned in terms of popular culture. So, even citing neo as the character you would be if you could be any character um is from this sort of ownership around means of production if we want to have like a cultural critique of capitalism in that the people who own it now are making podcasts you know youtube all this kind of stuff i think a lot of it really showed that nerds had the power around cultural production. Um, But I don't think in general that science fiction and fantasy has managed in the literary world has managed to overcome all the stereotypes about it. I definitely, uh, there's a lot of pushback in our store against recommendations that include any level of uh, the fantastical in them. I have to sort of carefully, see if customers are going to go along with me on a ride for a book that's three inches thick and has a dragon on the cover. You know? um, and the reality is we actually reduced our sci-fi and fantasy section um, and took out a bunch of what I would think of as like the older middling stuff that pe- when people think about sci-fi fantasy, that's what they think about, um, you know, the huge Dragonlance series and things like that. And that's not part of our section anymore because it nobody ever buys it people at least in our neighborhood folks aren't interested in it and we expanded our literary fiction section so just this is like a total diversion around cultural production but um i think that the zeitgeist has normed it but that also means that uh the consumption of it is limited to a certain key areas like largely television and film and things Mm. like that
0: it's interesting too because i used to work with youth and teens and it seems like they, they're more comfortable reading like fantasy and sci-fi at, and at some point maybe that shifts to literary fiction but that always seemed like I was reading literary fiction and wanting to recommend it to them and they they were like oh no no we want dragons and the fantastical we don't want you know it was interesting to see that that was where their interests lied and I w- wonder if you see that as well with young readers
1: well I think teens are inherently melodramatic you know and you want you are you are a narcissist which you should be like I think these are all things you should be when you're a teenager it's not a critique and these stories they are because they aren't required to follow real world rules you can have someone who is utterly the focus of the story you know who's battling evils and I think like all good science fiction it isn't it isn't a literal story about a dragon you know it's all about the ideas and the um and i realized for other genre fans out there the fact that i just used the word science fiction and then talked about a dragon <laughs> it's like broken I've, i'm not doing this right i'm not doing my genre fiction but you know if we're gonna go sci-fi it's like in space It's space boots and it's not literally about the space boots You know, I saw a great critique that was talking about love of science fiction. God, I wish I could remember who did it. And she was talking about the forever war and how a friend couldn't get into it because he kept explaining all the reasons why the engine wouldn't work, why you couldn't travel faster than light. And she's like, this is not a book about an engine that can make you travel faster than light. It's a book about returning to a world that is utterly changed from what you expect it to be you know it's about an idea and there's just space to explore that because you aren't bound by like to explore honestly what i think are like really critical ideas about our society because you aren't bound by trying to create realism in it
0: yeah i'm sure we could talk we could probably do a whole (laughs) podcast just on this but i want to talk about iron dog and how how iron dog started
1: So I started working for a bookshop in Edmonton, and then we moved back to Victoria, which is where my husband and I had been living before that. And I worked for several years for a bookshop in Victoria. And then he got a job here in Vancouver, and we moved here. And we had been working, um, I don't even know really when it began, but we had been working towards opening our own store because we... For a whole bunch of reasons, but a big part of it is we just didn't see what we liked and needed in a bookstore reflected in the either the bookstores I was working for, which by the way, were both great, like no critique on them, but which I just I didn't see what I needed reflected back at me in the bookshops that I was going to. So we knew this was a goal. And when we moved here and he started as a career as a professor at SFU, we started working towards opening a bookshop and it quickly became apparent that the rents were way too big of a risk for us you know we didn't start with a ton of resources not that it was terribly hard but but that we you know like I don't want to be like everything was so difficult at the beginning but also just that we didn't start with all of the access that maybe you might have because we were new to the city and so no connections nothing um and the idea of the book truck had been kicking around since our days in Edmonton um just as kind of like a running joke with my colleagues about like wouldn't it be so cute if someone started a book truck one day um and I said to my husband you know I think the book truck might be the only way to get this off the ground in Vancouver um and he (laughs) he doesn't remember this but he said to me he was like you know, basically like, ah, I don't even know how it would work. And I think it was the next day we were uh, sitting around after dinner and he said to me, well, I've had to think about it and here's how I think the book choke would work. And I was like, this is how I know it's going to go because you, you can't get out of your head. Once I was like, I think this is really something we got to do. He, he, he just couldn't, it captures the imagination too much. So we worked for the next sort of eight months to get financing in order, to get a loan, to make a plan, to figure out, because again, we didn't have any contacts how we were going to build the thing and who was going to do it. And um, we bought a truck and we started in the fall of 2017.
0: And what was the response to the book track? Like, I know what my response would be, <laughs> <laughs> but when you like rolled up on a corner, like what were people thinking when they saw the book
1: track? Oh, well, I think it would be interesting to hear what your feelings are, because I, I think you probably you can say it better than me, because I live with it. I, you know, it's a normal part of my life. But how do you feel when you think there's a book truck exists? Oh my gosh, it's like
0: better than an ice cream truck for me. <laughs> like if, if a truck rolled down my street and parked and was full of books, I would squeal for joy like a small child. So yeah. We also don't have a large book. We don't have a bookstore in Pell River. So I mean... A book truck is particularly exciting.
1: <laughs> no, that is exactly right. Is that it reaches into people, people's hearts, and it says, "Like there is magic. This is a magic thing, you know." And what interests me about it is that you don't have to be a dedicated reader. Like that's the thing the book truck showed me is that is all of the barriers that conventional bookshop have towards non-readers you know all the assumptions and even just the cultural understanding of the idea that bookshop people know a lot about books and are going to be snobs and the book truck because it's just such a weird thing is an invitation to everyone like that that's the biggest thing I've found is that everyone it turns out is a reader in some capacity um which is something I've carried with me into the brick and mortar try and make it as inviting as possible to non-readers but yeah, the book truck is a weird thing. It, it I also, I think we're probably going to talk more about the logistics of book trucking, but just something you said in your follow-up was how do people feel when you roll up? And I think that that's, that was one of the hardest learning curves for us is that there's no such thing as rolling up in the book truck. It is way too many logistics. Uh, there's no ability to sell on a street corner because of Va- Vancouver's restrictive licensing. It's just a real... Uh, it's a real challenge. It's a really hard thing to do to try and make a go of it in a mobile bookstore, um, which is why we have a brick and mortar now. So yeah.
0: Talk a little bit about the logistics. Like it, it, it sounds like easy, right? Put a whole bunch of books in a truck and park and, you know, like field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. <laughs> but uh, as you're saying, it's clearly not that easy. Um, so maybe if you want to talk a little bit about those challenges and then also uh the the transition to having the brick and mortar
1: yeah the the three big challenges to the book truck are licensing expense and weather and those are really deeply interrelated problems that essentially make it like a very hostile environment to try and make enough money to support the book truck. Um, I've been following my contemporaries who open book trucks and the average lifespan of one is two years. Our book truck, which is still in existence, but used sporadically also only lasted two years. Like this isn't me being like, ah, oh, I did it. And everyone else didn't. It is it's like, because two years is the first year you think, okay. I can do this. I It's hard, but I'm just getting started. And the second year, you realize that none of the challenges are ever going to go away and you have to figure out how to cope. And usually that means either opening a brick and mortar or selling it and moving on to other things. So the related things are licenses. There isn't a license to roll around and sell books. You can't be an ice cream truck and... Part of the reason why you can't be an ice cream truck is even if you could get an ice cream truck license, you sell more than twenty different kinds of ice cream, and it takes longer to choose it than you know. The our truck carries about three thousand books. I recently counted how much we could fit in there, so that's the new number because I now know how much it takes to fill it up, and that's that is a longer term proposition than how long you can have an ice cream truck. So. <laughs> If you can't get a license to operate just on the street and sell things in a regular place like a food truck, what do you do? And the answer is you do markets and special events, which have extraordinarily high fees or won't let you vend at all because they are a farmer's market and we don't make our books and they have make great go rules. So the fees often, you know, like I had months I discovered once I got into it that were in the summertime where the fees would be more than leasing a storefront. But I could only be open two or three days a week. So that combined with the final blow, which is the unpredictability of the weather, which is bad in a food truck, but worse in um, a storefront where you are trying to sell products because we people come into it and they don't want to if the weather's bad. And because I out of kindness they don't want to come in because they're all wet or unhappy and they don't want to make the books wet and unhappy and it's a crowded space and everyone feels uh bulkier when they're wearing all their stuff And they're like it's too small in there i don't want to get in there with my umbrella and my big coat and so we found that you know we would pay the big fees uh to go to an event because we couldn't get a license and then the weather would be terrible (laughs) we wouldn't make enough money so that's it that's like the trifecta of things that make a book truck a challenge or harder to run and um there's one that opened in squamish and they opened a couple months ago when they have already leased the storefront so they were faster on the uptake than me um they're called a little bookshop very cute i like their trailer and then i was recently contacted by some folks in east van who are thinking about opening one so there might be another one around town and honestly the more of us there are the better because maybe eventually we can get some good licensing
0: yeah and so at what point did you did you decide brick and mortar is the way to go or was that always kind of in the back of your mind as you were doing
1: the track it was not in the back of our mind at the start anyway i really did think because we have two small kids and i opened the store when they were two and four um i'm just doing math in my head i started work on the store when they were two and four and i opened it when they were three and five and so that was the other part of the reason for the truck is that I thought, oh, well, I can split my time between full-time parenting or, you know, stay-at-home parenting and, and running the truck on the weekends when my husband isn't working and he can parent. And um, it uh, that was like a considerable, the parenting thing was a considerable barrier to try and have a seven-day-a-week store. So when my daughter started kindergarten i thought she's gonna be in school five days a week we can get going on this we can open a storefront um and we leased our storefront and moved into it but it was primarily because of the winters it was primarily because we had gone through two winters by then and realized that although we can make money in the summertime we cannot the truck barely breaks even if it breaks even at all in the winter time and we were never going to move from a treading water position to a fully sustainable position financially if we didn't have more days available for sales in the time.
0: Yeah. You mentioned um, creating Iron Dog as like uh, to kind of capture what you weren't seeing in some of the bookstores you'd worked in and, and maybe some of the ones you were shopping in. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and what the vision was for Iron Dog.
1: So there were a couple key pieces for me um and it's it's kind of only in hindsight that you realize what it is you're trying to do or that I understand all the motivations driving us to open our own. Um, one of the big things was accessibility, which is the other reason why we thought the truck would be a really good idea, because there are so many areas in Vancouver that do not have bookshops. And it's such a drive to get to an independent bookshop. You know, we I came from Victoria. I'm not originally from Victoria, but I moved there in 2003 for university, which is just lousy with incredible bookshops. You know, they're everywhere um, and they're easy to get to because the city is not very big. And I really felt like there were these huge areas of the city that didn't have, it's just like you're talking about Powell River, that didn't have any access to this kind of cultural production. And so I thought we could put it in the truck and then go to these neighborhoods. Of course, the licensing prevented that. So accessibility was one of the key pieces. The other key piece was that there were all of these things that as Indigenous folk, we were constantly seeking out and trying to buy and they they were just hard to get. And even things that should have been that were massive bestsellers, you know, um, or let me rephrase that. They weren't massive bestsellers because nobody had them, but that everybody wanted that. I felt like everyone we knew was talking about And, and it's true. We're native people and we have a lot of native friends, but you know, Leanne Simpson is an, was is an amazing author and I wish everybody would read her and for my whole career I felt like it was a real my whole career Friday my I felt like it was a real struggle to get her titles you know to get them into the store to get people to read them. I felt like the Canlit community of around indigenous literature specifically but also other uh, literatures, was was just focused on like a few voices who didn't feel representative at all of who I felt Indigenous people were um, or things that I want to see or even just the diversity of voices. Like it doesn't need to be what I like, but just making sure the diversity of voices was available. And so wanting that, like wanting a space where you could go in and you could say, I'd like to buy Leanne Simpson and also a Fanon book. And I don't know. <laughs> maybe some like great weird queer science fiction you know like i just just going into a place where i felt like all of those things that seemed like they were so hard to access like you like you had to go online and buy them because your conventional bookshops were telling you to read jodi picot you know i um or other authors who were supposedly speaking for indigenous people but weren't actually indigenous i just i was like i want this to be available to us i want i want a place where I feel myself reflected back at us, at me, you know, and and where other people feel welcomed, which is why when we brought the truck out onto the road and I was like, there are so many people who don't feel welcome in bookish spaces. And if we can make a store that's for everybody, um, or at least where you feel it's somewhat hospitable to you, even if you're not a book person, then then
0: that's what I want to do. Yeah. That kind of segues into one of the other questions I wanted to ask you, which is, I think um, we've, maybe the pandemic has uh, done this more, but the love for independent bookstores is seems so strong right now. Maybe the strongest it's ever been, thank mm-hmm. God. But I wondered, like, what we don't know about independent bookstores that you think readers should know
1: the i think the big mythology is is that we will continue i mean there was a mythology that all independent bookstores are going to business which was also not true but i think that there is a mythology around a lot of independent businesses in general that we will just keep going you know um but the truth is we're we are actual businesses that that need a business case um to exist and that we work really hard to create the experience for folks and to survive and I I do think there's a lot of love out there for independent bookstores right now but the irony is we're doing the things we've always done people keep talking about us pivoting and I I was talking to my dad about this and I said you know what everyone refers to as curbside pickup or in-store pickup you have always been able to do that at a bookshop. We have always been a place where you can phone ahead and we will run around and pack your order for you and you can come in and get it. That has never not been a service. So I think it's also just that the last couple of years have meant that what we do is is needed and appreciated in a way that it wasn't. Um, but the big thing I want folks to know is that we are actually businesses like in the sense of of it being like a real job where we work hard and and care about this and it's not it isn't just sitting around reading and petting cats all day yeah (laughs) (laughs) i wish it was
0: drinking tea and like Mm -hmm. stroking leather-bound books right that's just what you do all day
1: (laughs) that's all i do it's true
0: yeah i think like i mean I I order a lot of books from Monroe's because it was my my hometown bookstore in Victoria. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I was emailing with them uh, around Christmas. And it was like, I think sometimes we do forget that you are businesses and you are working hard. Like, I think yeah. uh, maybe it's like the Beauty and the Beast or like there's like this weird fairy tale mythology around bookstores that we do forget sometimes. But I mean, especially around this Christmas, I think... I realized through my emails with with you and uh, Patricia at Massey Books and the folks at Monroe's, like, I mean, the highways being out, Christmas just being Christmas, supply chain issues, like, pandemic. Like, it was, like, all the things that could have possibly come together to make things, like, extra hard. It seemed extra hard around Christmas for – is that is that an accurate kind of – take on it
1: it is but one of the things that i found so interesting about this christmas is that even more than last christmas it was my best holiday season ever for customer interactions you know and that is saying a lot because it was my worst holiday season ever for meeting expectations because i couldn't do anything about the roads flooding You know, I couldn't, I couldn't do anything about the fact that everything got delayed by two or three weeks around that time period. Um, I couldn't do anything about the volume of damages I was seeing coming from Eastern suppliers because the carriers were so overworked, but I nobody lost their mind at me in a rage and I think that that is like by nobody I mean customers. I think that is indicative of what you're talking about, this feeling where you're like, oh, damn, (laughs) you're doing a real job. And, you know, you can't control this, like all of the laying bare the scaffolding, the very rickety scaffolding that holds up our consumer culture is... um, meant that I think there's a lot more empathy between service workers I mean does bad stuff still happen sure but in previous years I've had folks who were very upset you know when their book was late by like 24 hours or if you were like mildly brusked them because you had a big lineup and you know and who were very upset about it and and this year everyone was like times are tough and that level of empathy for each other I think is is a big win for for our city yeah
0: I hope, that's something I hope continues in, like, that that empathy can somehow continue into whatever the future looks like. But, yeah, I think, which also segues into uh, a question. You mentioned the, this idea that bookstores had pivoted. And and I think, you know, there's been so much, uh, like, I don't know if it's, like, doom and gloom or, like, scare, scare tactics or whatever around publishing and book selling around ebooks and amazon and all those Mm -hmm. things what is what has that been like for iron dog and is that like kind of accurate or are you are you still seeing you know people coming in and the love for books is still there and what do you hope for in the future for the bookstore
1: i'm kind of a heretic when it comes to a lot of this uh the mythologies of of publishing so sometimes i'm not a great person to talk to um because i i don't think that all of these things i don't think the consequence of all these things are necessarily bad although i think it's been a hard time and a big trip but i think we've gone through a type of reformation for the book world sort of a sort of a changing of our priorities in publishing you know the book rose to prominence like with the printing press as a medium for conveying information with i think relatively little regard for its physical form um and now with the information easily accessible by other means you know we were just talking about um genre as being more prominent in film and podcasting and um television um so with all of this information accessible by other means, the books acquired more value as an object. It means that when you're someone who sells these objects for money, people are looking for an enduring quality around books, a thing that you kind of, you want to keep forever, like you're looking for, which is something I've always valued in my curation. So I hope that that the huge shifts you know, we don't just need to print things to consume them anymore as content. Book publishing is no longer just content consumption. And I hope that in terms of publishing, it means a shift away from production for the sake of production and towards a system of value production, which is hard also when you're dealing with this whole, like we have to produce X number of books and get so many market share from various publishers. (laughs) Like there's a big mess there. But one of the... things around ebooks and reading on the internet is that it's taken away this need just to like print a thing to fill that hole now you have to print a thing that's actually good and that people want for it to have a financial case the other thing is is that i do think online selling i know everybody i know there's a lot of critiques out there and i am very happy to talk about all of the issues with big online retailers But one of the consequences of online retail is that it has shown because of aggregate data, that there is a market for voices that I think conventional publishing didn't publish because they felt there wasn't a a good case for it. They'd be like, well, if we can't get Barnes and Noble or if we can't get Chapters Indigo to buy 10,000 of this to put in all the stores everywhere, then it's not worth printing it, you know? And I think showing that, oh yeah, you can sell 2000 copies of this great book by a black author, but it's going to be 2000 copies across the whole country um, through an online retailer has shown like, oh, maybe if we could get this into physical stores, more people would buy it. You know, I really think, I, I don't think that online retail has been as much of a death now for the diversity of content production. Is it bad for small publishers? Yes, I think it is. Is it bad for the diversity of what people get access to? No, I don't I don't or at least I'm I'm not convinced yet. Which is why I'm a bit of a heretic cuz I'm like I don't know would NK Jemisin be popular if it wasn't for online selling? I don't believe she would um she's amazing she should be popular no matter what but i don't i think that you need that kind of uh wide reach to show that things that people see as being more um peripheral aren't peripheral at all that there is a very significant market for them
0: i'd love to hear your opinions about book prizes i know people have many diverse opinions and they are i mean i think there's always room for improvement in how we do these things but why do you think that that book prizes are
1: important from a just a pure logistics standpoint um book prizes drive sales and can completely rewrite the careers of authors or the fates of small publishers if those small publishers can have a book win I think that alone means that they have an important place in our landscape. The problems and the critique arise when the only books that get read are prize winners. um, And when the publishing industry starts to see their work as being sort of inextricably linked to prizes and the dogma of what a prize winner looks like. Um, I think there's so many fantastic midlist books that I wish people read more. And sometimes it can feel like you're fighting the tide of, of the zeitgeist, but but I do think book prizes are important for the opportunity they present to highlight things that otherwise that aren't being given a good marketing push, and I think that that's why it's really good that most of our book prizes rely on uh, a sort of a continually cycling jury of peers of some sort, because you, you it means you constantly have people who look at the world differently. Hopefully, hopefully you're drawing your jury from a diversity of selections. <laughs> Uh, Do
0: you want to talk about some of your favorite books by BC and Yukon authors?
1: It's probably no surprise that most of my favorite uh, books by BC and Yukon authors are Indigenous authors. Um, Sarah Florence Davidson, Lee Miracle, Richard Van Camp, sort of of all the BC Indigenous authors, Eden Robinson is my favorite. I... I do wonder if that's a boring answer to say that this sort of massively popular and beloved author with a huge reach is, is beloved by me as well. It sort of flies in the face of everything I was saying about trying to find midlist, but she wasn't, she wasn't that until relatively recently, you know, she's, she was a midlist author. She was underappreciated. I don't mind being somebody who's a fan of, of a massively popular author. Um, she's my favorite because she understands like this is not going to surprise anyone because she understands science fiction and fantasy and humor and because she writes real things and because she writes very efficiently and unapologetically and um, she always expects us to keep up and doesn't chivvy us along to make us understand her books. Um, I think most of Canlet treats it treats sci-fi either incredibly seriously like it's a dystopia and we're, you know, like just incredibly seriously, or it treats it like it's fluff and it's a Kelly Armstrong book. No, there's anything wrong with Kelly Armstrong book, but you know, that's it. They're, I think, American and um, Russian, and in particularly, um, actually, American, Russian, Japanese, and I would say uh, British science fiction is much less self-serious and much more uh quizzical and critical and i that's what i'm looking for and there's some really interesting stuff coming out in translation from uh south america in particular argentina right now That i'm really into but you're not talking about that you're talking about (laughs) british Columbian authors um so i mostly for fun read genre um i own a wish i was always a favorite from the mystery section i like to read her when i just want to snuggle up in a big storm and read a cozy um and I also, for work, read a lot of young adult, and I've sort of never gotten over my affection for Kit Pearson. You know, she's an icon. <laughs> she's so great. That was
0: Hilary Atleo. Hilary owns Iron Dog Books in Vancouver with her husband Cliff. If you want to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website, bcukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we share news about the winners and finalists, as well as information about upcoming events. Next week on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Carly Rigby. Carly is a book lover and bookstagrammer. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.